Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I asked somebody this morning in our uh, new members class, what does it mean that God is holy? And this person said, it means that God is set apart. Well, I wasn't content to leave it there. And I said, what does that mean? And they said this. They said, it means that he is wholly different from his creation. He is the creator and we are his creation. He is not created. He is an eternal being. And I love that answer. But they went on and they said, but he's also set apart from sin. And, uh, and our brother was right. He, our God is all that's wrong in our world, all that's sinful in our world. God is not like that. He is the opposite of that. He's set apart from that. And that's one of the reasons why we worship him this morning. Last week, I, I told you that God can take our sorrow and he can take our suffering and he can bring some good out of that for those of us who love him. And, and he's done that for me. And so I'd like to tell you about it um, just here as I begin. I've struggled all my life, my Christian life, been following Jesus. I said 45 years the other a couple of weeks ago, I think it's between 40 and 45 years I've been following Jesus. And, and I've struggled that entire time to tell people about the hope that I have in Jesus. And the reason why I've struggled, I think it is, is because nobody wants to talk about death. They hate for you to bring it up. And, and not to mention that it, it seems so fantastical to talk about life after death. And none of us want to be seen as strange or or weird, and, and so I think, I think that plays a part into it for me. I'm not talking about you, though, though I know most of you are where I am, and the reason I say that is because statistically, I think it's 95% of us who name the name of Jesus, statistically, never have the opportunity of leading someone else to Jesus. And the reason why that is, is because probably most of that 95% don't ever talk about Jesus. And I want to tell you, if you don't ever talk about Jesus, you're never going to have the privilege, privilege of leading someone else to follow Jesus. And, and so I know many of you are where I am and, 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 and having a difficult time bringing up Jesus, talking about Jesus to other people. But I, but I want to tell you, with, with a sorrow in my life, God has, God has done something good and that he's given, me, he's given me something to share with people that's not what I was always sharing with people. Even though even though I found it hard for the last 40 plus years, I have been committed to telling people about Jesus. And, and I have. And I've always feel awkward. I always feel out of place. I always never know exactly what to say and, and, and all. So for those of you that may not know this, my 24-year-old son uh, died five months ago. And sorry. And, uh, and that's been a great sorrow in my life. But there's been a good thing that's come out of that. And the good thing is that God has given me something to tell people. So I want to tell you just a few minutes. I want to tell you a little bit what, what God, how God has led me and what I have been doing. And, and, and this might, you, might think I'm a, you might think this is not appropriate. I'm sorry, but it's so appropriate for me. I have started telling people that I don't even know. I'll come up to them and I'll say... Can I tell you about a club that I recently joined? And they go, sure. They want to know about this club. So I pull out my wallet. My phone, sorry. <laughs> There'll come a day where this will be your wallet and everything, right? But right now it's just my phone, sorry. And, and, I, and I pull up a picture of my grandson, Benaya, And I say, I joined the granddaddy club. And, and I'll tell you what, everybody... Everybody's just so excited for me. Some of the men that I've talked to are granddaddies, and they'll go, oh, there ain't nothing like being in a granddaddy club. And then I'll say to them, but you know what? I joined another club recently, too. They say, really? What's that? I say, this club's not so nice. And I'll find a picture of my chef, and I'll say, I joined the club of parents. 
who had to bury their 24-year-old sons. And uh, in that moment, I've taken them from this joy to this place where their heart breaks with mine. Because I've yet to say that and not get like this. <laughs> and you might think it's not fair of me to do that. But I want to tell you, it is so fair for me to do that. And it is so in my heart to do that because the next thing I say to them is, but I got hope. <laughs> I got hope that I'm going to see my son again. You see, my son followed Jesus and I followed Jesus. And, and, and I've got hope that because of what Jesus did, my son's going to rise from the dead. And I'm going to rise from the dead. And I'm going to see my son again. And I've had the opportunity to follow that up with, do you have that hope? Do you share that hope? And you know what? Instead of me just sharing certain things for them to believe so they can be right with God, I'm offering them hope that I have. And i got to tell you, every time I've shared like this, everyone has thanked me. And, and most everyone I've talked to claims to have the hope that I have, and I'm, I'm glad for that. Today, I, I want to tell you about that hope again. I want to tell it to you from the Scriptures. And I hope this morning that as we work through the text in front of us today, that what will happen when we're finished is that we will marvel at Jesus. I know most of you share my hope, and so... You know, I'm going to talk about that hope that you have and that I have. It's in the text. But I want us to marvel at Jesus this morning from what the Scripture says about him. So bow your head one more time, if you would, please. Father, help me do well in communicating what you've put on my heart. But Holy Spirit, we also know what you said, that we, we, we're just easily distracted. We need help in understanding. So help us now. Lord, help us to curb our minds so that we're not just lost in what's coming this afternoon or later tonight or anything else, but that we might focus our attention on you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you happen to be our guest, and we do have some this morning, we're really glad you're here again. But we're studying through the Gospel of John, and we're at chapter 5 in, uh, in our Bibles in the study of John's Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. And chapter 5 marks a major division in John's Gospel. The prologue introduces Jesus, and chapters 1 through 4 are presenting Jesus to the Jewish people as their promised Messiah. But chapter 5, John, the apostle who's writing this, organizing his material, is beginning to show us the active rejection of Jesus and, and the malicious and hostility, that it, the malicious hostility that's going to be arising against our Savior. And John the Apostle is going to organize that hostility or demonstrate that hostility around three miracles that Jesus does. One of them, the one that we're going to look at this morning, the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Then there'll be the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And then finally the, rise, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And in each one of these stories, the hostility is increasing. So have your Bible in front of you so you can follow along. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in, in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Waiting for the movement of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down to, at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then, whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in it, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Well, chapter 5, we find Jesus one year later back in, in Jerusalem for the Passover. A year has gone by between chapters 1 and chapter 4. If you've been with us for this entire study, you know there hasn't been a lot of detail. There hasn't been a lot of things that, that John has talked about. If you want to find more details of his first year, go to Matthew. Go to Luke, and you'll find more details of some of the things that Jesus did in that first year. But John has him back in Jerusalem once more. And this time he has him by the pool of Bethesda or the pool by the sheep gate. 
Now that, that pool was lost to us until about 60 years ago. 60 years ago, archaeologists found it. They dug it up from all the debris that had covered it. There were five porches that surrounded the pool there by the Sheep Gate. And uh, during this time of festivity, many of those who were sick and ill, they would gather around the pool hoping for a miracle. Now, if you happen to be reading from an NIV Bible this morning, or maybe even the ESV Bible, you will notice, you would have noticed that I was reading things that were not in your Bible. Verse 4, if you look at your text again, you'll notice it goes 1, 2, 3, 5, and skips verse 4. The reason for that is because that verse 4, the one that kind of explained why they're trying to get into the water, about the angels stirring the water and all, that's not in the oldest manuscripts of our Bible. In other words, some of the oldest surviving manuscripts do not have verse 4. So most everyone agrees, although the majority text would have it. It's a much later text. And, uh, and I would probably agree that this is just an assertion that a scribe did at some point in the past. Maybe he put it in the, in the margin to try to explain to someone who would have no idea, who wasn't Jewish, who was probably Gentile, who had no idea why they're trying to get into the pool. He's trying to explain to them why they were trying to get into the pool. And, and obviously that expl- explanation is is certainly superstitious at best. There are pools like that even today. Did you know that? Lourdes in, um, in southern France has a spa that supposedly has healing capacities. Guadalupe in Mexico City has a pool like that. There are literally hundreds of crutches lined up against the wall where people have walked away from that pool supposedly being, being healed. The Pool of Bethesda was a pool like that where people who were sick went there hoping to get healed. It was an intermittent spring pool, meaning that it was fed by the springs in the hills around Jerusalem. And so it would surge at times, just like springs do. And it would bubble up with different pressures. And that gave rise to the superstition of of angels getting in the water and stirring it up. And somehow over time, people began to believe that if they made it into the water first, after it was stirred by the angels, because they didn't have knowledge of pressure in the hills and, and spring water and that sort of thing, then they would, they would be healed. And so Bethesda, and again, certainly some of them were healed because a lot of times our mind has great healing capacities when we think something is true. And so obviously these were psychological healings at some level. And, and so, so Bethesda had this reputation, so people were there. Among the people that were at the pool, that Passover, was a man who'd been there for 38 years. He's never said to be lame. He's said to be weak. He hasn't been able to walk, evidently, for quite some time. It's led many people to speculate that maybe he had a disease like multiple sclerosis, but uh, he, he had been sick for 38 years, and he finds himself by the pool. The man in the story is absolutely helpless and hopeless and uh, And Jesus is going to step into his life and is going to change his life. Now, here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to walk us through the story. And the story has not, is not just what happens at the pool, but it's what happens after the pool. And it's some of the things that Jesus will say in response to what is being said about him. But I'm going to take all of the texts that we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 5, verse 1 through 29. And, and I want to show you seven certainties about Jesus that, that I hope, that I hope when I finish this morning with this talk, you will marvel at our Savior. I hope you'll love him more. I hope you'll desire to follow him more closely. That's my goal this morning. My first point may even seem contradictory to you in that, in that means, but, um, but here we go. Here's the first thing. Jesus didn't heal everyone. Here's what I want you to know about Jesus. Jesus didn't heal everyone. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well. Pick up his pallet and began to walk. Now here's the thing I want you to notice before we even talk about the man. What I want you to notice is there's a great crowd of people there. They're paralyzed, they're blind, they're lame, they're sick. And they're all hoping to get into that water. And out of the crowd, Jesus picks one man. He didn't empty the porches of all that were ill. 
He didn't stand at the edge of one of the porches and say, all you who are sick, come line up here and I am going to lay hands on you and heal you. And please don't, I'm not trying to necessarily make any comparison to what happens today. I simply want you to learn this valuable lesson that I think John wants us to at least know. Maybe it's not the point of the story, but it's at least a lesson that he wants us to know. This is how God in the flesh dealt with a lot of our human helplessness and hopelessness and weakness. It clearly shows that Jesus doesn't always remove everyone's trouble immediately and miraculously. Now let's follow that thought through for just a moment. Why didn't Jesus heal everyone? I've heard people say this, if I had the gift of healing that, that some of the apostles had, I'd go to the local hospital and I'd walk down the halls and I'd heal everybody in the hospital hall. And I would too. Why didn't Jesus did that, do that? Because he, as God, you know, and, and again, he, I know why he didn't do it, okay? He didn't do it because he didn't, the Father didn't want him to do it. The Father didn't enable him to do it, didn't tell him to do it. That's why he's not doing it, right? But, but why is he not doing it? Here's what Jesus says. He says because his primary ministry was not going to be healing. His primary ministry was going to be talking, preaching, telling them the truth. And so, so he does not want healing to be his primary ministry, in Mark, we read that he heals Peter's mother. Many hear about it and they come. And then he sneaks out the back door. And this is what he says to his disciples. Let us go elsewhere into the surrounding villages so that I can preach there too. For that is what I came to do. So he went to all of Galilee preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons. Jesus' primary concern with truth-telling and preaching that men might understand his main mission. He wasn't going to allow healing physical needs to become the primary focus of what he did. Now, people's physical needs are great. And I don't want you for a moment to think that I'm implying that somehow we're excused from trying to meet every need we can. Well, we're not. I mean, we, we should do our best to meet every need. Obviously, we can't. Jesus even told his disciples, the poor you'll have with you always. His implication was you're not going to be able to completely eradicate poverty. But that, even what Jesus said then, does not mean that these things should not be major concerns for us. And I am not trying to in any way say to us that these shouldn't be primal in our thinking as followers of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. Be careful not to promise people something that Jesus wasn't even willing to do when he was here in person. So often we want people to follow Jesus and we're promising them somehow that Jesus is going to remove all of our hardships or that nothing bad's ever going to happen to you or that, you know, life is going to be wonderful if you follow Jesus. That is not always true. It's not what Jesus did. It's not what he promised. And we should be careful not to promise the same, promise things that we can't deliver on. And here's the other thing I want you to see about this. And that is, for us application-wise, don't forget the main thing, everyone. Don't forget the main thing. The main thing, I mean, it is that we, we talk about Jesus because Jesus wants to give eternal life to all of us. He wants us to live beyond death in this life. And not only does He want us to live beyond death in this life, He wants us to know Him and to have a friendship with Him so that in the life to come, we're, we're, He's going to be our King, but He's also going to be our friend. Remember what He told His disciples, I call you guys friends. The Creator says, I call you guys friends. So don't forget the main thing is that we communicate the truth. And, and so it's, it's, you know, don't neglect the other, but keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, before I move on, what a strange question Jesus asked the guy. Don't you find it strange? Do you want to be healed? Why did he ask that? I, I think it's because he knows that sometimes we can get so trapped in our misery or so trapped in, in our helplessness or our weakness that we're just, and we're too scared to do anything different or to try anything or to trust anything more. And we just stay, he, he's, he wants to know, do you really want to be healed? Now, now the man says, I really want to, but I can't get in the water. Everybody beats me there. And a lot of commentators say that the man's just making excuses for himself. I, I don't think so, personally. We'll give the man the benefit of the doubt. I think he's saying, I really want to be healed, but I just can't, I can't get in the water first. Not that getting in the water first would do anything for you. 
but he can't get in the water first. I'm not sure why Jesus, Jesus asked the question. Um, so often he puts responsibility on us for faith, right? He, he wonders whether, he, he asks us, do you believe me? Do you trust me? There was, a, there was a time in Nazareth, I think it was, where it says he could do no miracles. Because why? They, they didn't have faith. They lacked faith. Number two, Jesus did what only God could do. Do you, remember, do you remember the purpose for which John is writing? Those of you that have been here from the beginning, we've commented on it numerous times. He's writing so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah King and that you might believe he's that, the Son of God and that by believing in him, you might have eternal life. That's the reason why he's writing. The reason why John is including this story and the reason why Jesus did this miracle is so that we might believe that Jesus is God because Jesus did only that which God can do. John, John records this story for that end. Every miracle that Jesus did, he did that we might believe. Later on in the book of John, listen to what Jesus says. He's talking to some people. He says, Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father, God, abiding in me, does his works. Believe me, believe what I'm saying, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he says this, Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. If you're not willing to take me at my word, if you're not willing to believe my word, at least believe because of what I am doing. I know what you think, because I think it. Boy, if God would just do a miracle. God would just show me a miracle. I'd always believe. I'd, 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 I'd be this sold out. If I just saw a miracle of some sort. Don't, don't be so quick to think that way. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is saying this. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the miracles, had the miracles occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. The miracles didn't move everyone, and miracles aren't necessarily going to move you. In verse 20, Jesus said, God would do even greater miracles than this healing. We're going to get to that in just a moment. And he said, he's going to do that so people would marvel. I want you to marvel at Jesus. He did things that only God could do because he was God. But we'll talk about that in just a second. Number three, Jesus rejected human constructs. I'm at verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cursed, cured, excuse me, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now the man's in trouble with the Sabbath keepers, with the Sabbath, with the Jewish leadership, because he's carrying his bed under his arm, and it's the Sabbath day. And this is where John begins to trace this movement of rejection against Jesus. The law of Moses permitted, or the, the law of Moses said, keep the Sabbath holy. We were to refrain from work on that day. Well, the, the rabbis and the teachers said, well, we need help with that. What does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? So they wrote up 39 different things that it meant not to work on the Sabbath. And one of them was not to take, uh, not to carry a load. Even in the book of Jeremiah, there's, there's a thing that says, don't carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day. So when they saw the man carrying his bed, they, they immediately go and say, what are you doing? Why are you carrying this bed on the Sabbath? Why are you, why are you breaking the Sabbath? And, um, and so the man would say, because the guy who healed me told me to do it. Jesus would have all kinds of run-ins with the Pharisees and the religious leadership of his day. He would have all kinds of run-ins with them over the Sabbath thing. He would say things like this, God made the Sabbath for you all. He made it to bless you as his creatures. He didn't make you for the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath for you to bless you. And by the way, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I have a right to tell you how to live out the Sabbath day. 
Their real motive, I think, is, is, is even seen in what they said to him. They said, he said, the man who healed me told me to take up my pallet and walk. And their reaction is not, you got healed? Who healed you? That's not what they asked. They asked, who told you to carry that on the Sabbath day? In other words, their, their whole focus is, is on the disobedience of their, uh, their regulations. They're intent on the letter of their laws, not God's law, their laws. And they have no mercy. Now, unless we think that's not around today, it really is. People can care more about their religious traditions than they do about what God says. We can care more about, about the, the core of our building than we do of the function of our building. We can care more about our programs and that we keep doing the same programs over and over and over, regardless of whether they're effective anymore or not. We can care more about our programs than we can whether we're actually accomplishing that which we wanted to accomplish with our programs. It's, it's very easy. Jesus didn't care back then about their constructs. He doesn't care about our constructs today. He cares that we follow him. Number four, Jesus cared for more than just the man's physical needs. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, this man's law, I mean, the law required that this man now being healed would go to the temple and offer a thanksgiving offering. Evidently, Jesus knew that, went there and waited for him. When he shows up, he goes and he finds him. And he says to the man, he says, be careful. Be careful that you don't, you know, you've been healed now. Don't sin so that something else might happen to you. Some other discipline might come upon you that's even worse. And the the revealing of that word to us is this, that some sickness comes as a result of sin. That's what Jesus said, okay? Now, we need to be careful here. Not all all sickness comes as a result of sin. I, I don't even know that a lot of this sickness comes as a result of sin. All sickness comes as a result of our sin as people, right, and the fall of man. So all that's wrong in this world is going to be made right one day. But that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus seems to say your specific situation is a result of specific sin in your life. Now in chapter 9, we'll get to it and there'll be a blind guy. And his disciples, having heard this, will go to Jesus and say, Who sinned here? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus will say, Neither one of them. That the glory of God might be displayed. So here's what I want you to hear, right? I want you to hear that... It's it, not all sin is, I mean, not all sicknesses or, or, or struggles or sorrows are a result of sin, but some of them can be. And in this case, evidently this guy's was. And Jesus goes to him because he cares not just about the fact that the man be healed. He cares about the man's inner life, his soul, his being. He cares about him and he goes and he warns him that, that he is not to continue to walk in, in sin. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable. You remember this parable? It's a story about a man who's really wealthy and, and he keeps building bigger barns so that he can save up more. It's kind of like he's a big bank account, right? He keeps making bigger barns for all his stuff. And Jesus says, that man dies. That man dies right when he gets his barns built. And Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his life. What, what does it profit us in the end to be healed physically and then to lose our life forever? To not share in eternal life, to not share in the resurrection of God's people. What, what does it profit us for all of that and, and then to lose our life for nothing? Your physical health is important. It colors everything about your life, doesn't it? When you're sick, doesn't your whole, your whole inner man or inner woman feels down, right? And, when, and if you have some kind of disease that's really debilitating, listen, don't hear me saying anything, but that really makes life hard and it is tough and I get it. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what does it matter if you had all your health? But you miss the promise of God's coming kingdom. You miss God's gift of eternal life. What does it profit you? I mean, you have 80 years. Okay, so it's great. But you're trading that for all eternity with God and with those who love him and with those who would love you. Number five, Jesus declared himself one with God. 
Persecution has begun, and they're persecuting him because of the Sabbath rules, but it gets a whole lot worse now. Verse 17. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If you claim something, and your friend said you said it, and your enemy said you said it, I'm telling you, you said it. Jesus claimed to be God. You know, I'm not going to read it again. I read it a few weeks ago, and then a couple of weeks after that, I think Micah read it. It was a piece from C.S. Lewis. And in that piece from C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, you can reject the claim of Christ, but you cannot change it. You, You cannot say it's something else, like Jesus is a good man, because he's not a good man. He's either Lord, he's either God, or he's lying and he's a scoundrel and, and he, who is up to no good. You, you, cannot, you cannot minimize his claim to be God because he made it so clearly. This morning in prayer meeting, we, we read the text and, and, and Jenny in her prayer pointed that out. I don't know if you remember. I'm listening because I'm preaching on this, right? And she made the claim, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is God. And, and that is so true. Now look at, now look at the, look, keep looking at the text. Though equal with God, Jesus also declares his supernatural abilities dependent on God the Father. Verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus was God, but he was not. And I want, even, I want to say, and some of you might disagree, and that's okay, but I would say he could not act independently of God the Father. That I think the kenosis of Philippians chapter 2 when it says that Jesus emptied himself. I think he emptied himself in the sense of taking on human limitations. And so he could not act independently of the Father. And what he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's what, here's what he says. I am dependent on my Father. And I can do nothing that I don't see the Father doing. And we are not God. How much more reason should we seek to walk in absolute dependence on on God our Father? How much more should we say, God, what are you doing? And see what God is doing and then jump in with God and what he's doing. Some of you will remember Henry Blackaby. He wrote a, a Bible study called Experiencing God. And one of his major contentions in that study was this. See where God is working and then jump in with him. And, and work alongside of him. And so when you see God working, jump in there. Get involved. Get involved with that. And, and that's, you know, and I'm not saying Jesus, Jesus had a connection with the Father that we don't, we don't share. I mean, sin did not separate the Father from the Son. And so when Jesus is communicating with God and the Spirit, I mean, it's, it's bound to have been different than it was for us. But Jesus is saying, though I am God and equal with God, he expressed his dependence on the Father. Here's another thing. In his equality with God, Jesus is absolutely loved by the Father. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. You know, in this, in this co-equality that Jesus shared with the Father, I mean, it is bound by love. God loved Jesus. Jesus loved the Father. The Father loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Son. From all eternity, they have loved each other. Why? Because God is love. God doesn't have love. God is love. I mean, I think he makes that. He doesn't say in 1 John, God has love or God is loving. It says God is love. There's something about the nature of our creator that he says, man, love is at the core of who I am. Jesus said earlier in John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. At the son's baptism and at his transfiguration, the father would speak audibly so that human creatures could hear him. And the father would say, this is my beloved son. This is the son whom I love and I'm well pleased with him. And God loves you too. And his desire is that you would love him. I'm going to say that you would love him back. 
Because he first loved you. You don't love him because you first loved him. You love him because he first loved you. And he longs. And people, people, people reject my terminology here. You know, God doesn't put himself into a place of longing. You know, I disagree. God longs for us to love him. Could he make us love him? Absolutely. But that, I don't think, I mean, Ravi Zacharias, I read you this a few weeks ago. That's not love. God longs for us to love him because he is love. Number six, Jesus will be the judge over all of mankind. Now, we're going we're to shift a little bit. Look at verse 20. For the, love, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these. What works? Than, than, the, than the healing of the lame dude by the pool of Bethesda. He's going to show him greater works than these. So that you will marvel. Your translation may use the word amazed, so that you will be amazed. Now, there's two things that I believe that, that John the Apostle is going to write about and point to. And this, the first one is what I'm calling six in this list of amazing things about Jesus. And the seventh will be the second one of these things that, that are the greater works. But here's the first one. The greater work is that Jesus will be the judge over all. Here's the two things. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, even so the Son also gives life to, to whom He wishes. Now I'm going to come back. That's the second one. Here's the first one that I'm looking at now. Jesus is our judge. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, so that they all will, excuse me, honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. God has given to Jesus the role of judge, of giving life and taking life. Now God is still the judge because Jesus is God, but Jesus as the person of the Godhead that's being entrusted with this role of, of judge, it, it is him. He is the person who will be given the right to judge all of us. Matthew 25, verse 31. Just listen. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels are with Him, He, Jesus, will sit on His glorious throne. The people of every nation will be gathered in front of Him. He will separate them as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Because God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising this man from the dead. Who's that man? That man is Jesus. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, the Apostle Paul says, which the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who's looking for the return of Christ. Paul tells Timothy that that one will sit and be my judge. See, a greater thing that Jesus will do than, raising, than, than, than giving the lame man back his walking ability will be the fact that he will sit as judge over all of us. Everyone in this room, you will be judged by Jesus. He'll sit as judge over your life. Now one note before I move to the last thing. Jesus did not come into the world at that time to judge the world, but to save it. That was what was so confusing to so many. Jesus, Jesus did not come into the world as a man and live 33 years to judge the world. He came as that human being to save the world. And so John chapter 12, verse 47, we'll, we'll cover this in, in the months ahead. But if anyone hears my sayings, Jesus said, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my sayings. Has one who judges him, the word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. So here's what Jesus says. On the day when I come back and sit as judge over all, the thing that will judge you will be my words. The words here, the words that you're hearing, that will be your judge on that judgment day. 
His judgment won't be arbitrary. His judgment will be just exactly what he said his word would be, just exactly what he said judgment would be. And that brings me to my last thing, to, make, to, to help us marvel, be amazed by Jesus. And that is this, that Jesus will give his, give life, give his life first and foremost, but he will give life, eternal life, to all who follow him. Let me go back to verse 21, kind of beginning this, this, this two things that, that he's going to do that are greater than, than healing the lame man. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of life, out of death into life. Jesus begins by saying that if we believe his words, we have eternal life and we're not going to be judged. We've passed out of death into life. Now here's what Jesus does not mean. He does not mean that we won't die. Now some of us may be here when Jesus comes back and you won't die as we understand death. But apart from that, every single one of us to whom he made this promise, we will die. He is not saying that we won't die. It's appointed for all men to die once, the Bible says. You will die. What he means is that you won't stay dead. That's what he means. You won't stay dead. It's a certainty. It's a done deal. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in him, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Now, what is Jesus alluding to here? Here's, here's what I think he's alluding to, at least, at least in great part, if not in its entirety. I think that Jesus is alluding to the next Passover. Because it's at the next Passover that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. And I think he's saying when he says the hour has come, I don't think he means in this particular moment. I think he means in this particular time of history, you will hear, you guys will hear, people, somebody will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will rise from the dead. Now, Lazarus isn't the only one that Jesus raised from the dead. He raised the son of the woman from Nain. He raised her from the dead. Uh, other people would be raised. I, I can't remember if Jesus raised. Oh, and, and, and Tabitha. He raised Tabitha. Was, it, was her name Tabitha? Jairus' daughter? He raised Tabitha from the dead. Okay. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says that other men and women rose from the dead at the same time. I think, I think, he's, alluding, I think he's alluding to this that there's an hour coming where you will see that dead people will rise back to life. Now, they'll all die again, but dead people are coming back to life. And I think the one he specifically is alluding to is Lazarus that you're going to see Lazarus raised from the dead because I have authority to give life to those who have died. And then he says, and if you think Lazarus' resurrection is anything, let me show you. Verse 28. Don't marvel at this that some will rise from the dead. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There is coming a day. Listen carefully. I'm almost finished, so, so give me your undivided attention for five more minutes. There is coming a day when Jesus the judge returns and he will raise every man and woman, every boy and girl, every child, every person. God is going to raise them from the dead and there will be a judgment. And Jesus says there'll be a judgment that is a resurrection to life, eternal life, or there is going to be a resurrection to judgment. Now, the resurrection to life is this. It is a resurrection, listen carefully, to never die again. It is a resurrection to a life on a renewed earth where Jesus will be our King. 
It is a resurrection to a renewed you where your heart will be forever changed because somehow God's going to take away our selfishness and our self-centeredness and, and we're going to be different than we are today. I don't know how that works. I'm still selfish. I still struggle with the old me. But there's coming a day where I won't and I'll be different and I'll always care more about you than I care about me. And I'll always want to love Jesus more than I want to love me or anything else. There's going to be a resurrection to a renewed you where your heart will be changed forever. And there'll be a resurrection to peace and rest. We're studying 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians on Wednesday night. And one of the things that Paul says that when Jesus comes with his powerful angels, he's going to give rest to his people. And the word is that of taking a bowstring that's tense, right? And taking the bowstring loose and taking the tension off the bowstring. Man, my life's full of tension. Is your life full of tension? There's coming a day when Jesus is going to change that. It's a resurrection to restoration, to absolute perfection that God desired in the Garden of Eden before our sin came into the world. That's what God is resurrecting us to. Now, the other resurrection is to judgment. The Bible calls it eternal destruction. The Bible calls it the second death. The Bible calls it everlasting contempt. You have a choice. Marvel at Jesus because Jesus said, I am going to raise people for you to see them. I'm going to, see, I'm going to raise them back to life. But know this, there's coming a day when I'm raising every man back to life. You marvel at Jesus because Jesus will raise all of us back to life again. Go back to the verse and it says, Jesus said, and he says, um, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, and those who committed good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. If that was the only verse we had in the Bible, I guess we'd have to say that God judges us based on what we do, right? And actually, He will judge us based on what we do. And the wages of what we do wrong is death. That's what the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so when he judges us all, we all deserve death because of our sin. But here's, the, here's what it means to be a Christian. Man, I'm going to tell you something you don't know. If I am, man, this is wonderful. You need to really understand this because this is what the Christian life is. It's not about, it's not about you changing, turning over a new leaf and now living for God. Now, hopefully everybody who follows Jesus does what I just said, but that's not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is this. Listen. The Christian life is that I recognize that in my sin, um, I, don't have a, I don't have a hope. The wages of sin is death. I'm a sinner. I don't have a hope. But you see, there's one over there who never sinned. There's one over here who never sinned, never did anything wrong, never failed God. And that one died in my place. Because see, he didn't, the wages of sin is, but he didn't deserve to. So when he died, he died for, for me died for me. And here's what the Christian life is. It's just an exchange. And it's an exchange that goes not by what I do, but by, but by my faith. You see, the, the Bible says so clearly from the beginning, from Old Testament to New, that the person who puts his faith in God, the person who puts his faith in Jesus, God credits to him righteousness. <laughs> so God took all of my bad works and Jesus died for them. And he took all of Jesus' good works, and by faith he applies them to me. So at the resurrection to judgment, you see, the ones that inherit eternal life are the ones that the good works of Jesus have been applied to their lives. And everyone else will pay the due penalty of their sin, which is death. I stand here this morning before you as an ambassador I have been called and commissioned of God, not because I'm a pastor, but because I follow Jesus, to offer to every one of you this morning eternal life. And so that's what I'm going to do right here in this very moment. I am offering to you eternal life. You can have eternal life today. Yes, you're going to die, but you'll be raised to eternal life. So, so my question is, is there anyone here this morning who is not a follower of Jesus already, but who would be willing to say, I want to receive Jesus. 
that I might follow him to eternal life. Is there anyone here this morning who would like to receive Jesus? Here's what I'm asking you to do. Right where you sit, right now. No music, no fanfare. Raise your hand up. Let me see it. Anybody? Anybody here? All right. That leaves the rest of us. I stand here this morning as a brother to many, maybe, hopefully all of you, and I exhort you, marvel at our Savior. Marvel at our King. I exhort you to love Him more, to follow Him more closely, to serve Him with all your being. Jesus surrendered the glories of His personhood as God. I don't know exactly what that means, what that looked like. He, he didn't surrender His Godhood. He, I mean, he was still God, fully God. But he surrendered something and submitted to humiliation for you and for me so that we, his mortal creatures, might live forever, so that we might have life. He submitted himself to death, and not just any death, a gruesome, painful, humiliating death so that we might live. And so my exhortation this Sunday morning is that you might love Jesus more. Might, might obey our Savior more. Might surrender more of your heart daily to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we honor you as our King. Honor you as our Lord. We honor you as the one who is worthy of all of our praise. Thank you, Jesus, for, for who you are who you are to us and who you will be throughout all eternity. The king, the king that laid down his life for this mortal creature like me so that I could live with you and love you and know you forever and not just for me, but for all my brothers and sisters. Jesus, we honor you and we love you and we exalt your holy name today. And we pray in your name because you are Lord. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.